0: Alright, good to see you guys tonight. How are you? It's really dark. I don't know if it's okay if we could turn on a few house lights. It'd be nice to see everybody in here. Um, guys, turn to the person next to you and say, it's great to be here. Turn to the other side and say, you look really good tonight. And don't, don't overdo that. Don't overdo that. That could be dangerous. Sorry if that made some of your situations very awkward. So epic to uh, pray for Bishkek. Christoph and I were actually just both there. Uh, Christoph and I were just there uh, with a whole bunch of people at the, in early December, stunning what God's doing in this area of the world. Uh, this entire year, we are taking the first week of every month to pray for Central Asia, believing that uh, our prayers and our actions are going to help shift the region. There are only 2,000 missionaries all of Central Asia. How many think God wants to double that in like the next two years? And uh, that's what we're believing for, What so we're pressing in for. I love this. I'm actually going to take it off because... Uh, It might distract me a little bit. Put it over here. I love these, though, and it's a huge blessing. Whoever made it, thank you so much, or bought it. I want to jump right in, and um, guys, I'm so stirred tonight. I can so vividly remember uh, sitting in this Ohana court in 2010, and uh hearing lauren start to talk about the next decade and everything he was believing for by the year 2020 and at that point at 20, 2010 I'd have been 30 years old and you know uh, many ways looking ahead going okay where am i going to spend many years of my life and what is God calling me to and how do I spend my 30s, lots of questions and you know that often can be a season where you're reevaluating and you're questioning where do I really put down roots and I remember so vividly Lauren talking about this next decade of harvest and calling us to a great faith for what God was about to do in the next 10 years and to believe with all of our hearts in a harvest like it never been seen before in history and that by 2020 that there would be more salvations than maybe the rest of history. Added together. And we were filled with vision and passion. Many of our friends, and of course, at that time, there had been many DTS students that were 18, 19 years old in 2010. And uh, we were gripped with a decade vision to put roots down and to commit with grit and determination to see a breakthrough in the nations of the earth. It was around that time that Fire and Fragrance was birthed and some of our hearts that were leading that. It was shortly after that time that Circuit Riders was birthed with a tenacity to not give up on America and our belief for harvest across the earth. It was in this season, these 10 years, that the Send was birthed and we began to contend for a whole generation to step into their Great Commission calling. So much began to happen over this decade. But I look back to being 30 years old in this Ohana court and Lauren calling us to would you leave for a decade of breakthrough and harvest. And here we are in 2022, 23 now, very beginning, first Thursday night, first quarter of 2023 for a campus, and 10 years from now being what would traditionally be said as the 2000th anniversary of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And I feel in January of 2023 that God wants to throw down the gauntlet on us once again, And to ask, would we believe tonight for a decade of harvest and a decade of breakthrough like has never been seen before in history? And is there a people, is there a generation of 18-year-olds who would believe at 18 years old that the next 10 years of your life is critical and that your life is critical for the Great Commission. And could it be that in these 10 years ahead of us, on our way to celebrate the 2000th year of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that we are on the doorstep of the greatest harvest in all of human history and that God has hand-prepared a generation, Gen Z, as a catalyst to this harvest all over the earth. But I also wanna speak to our staff community, many of you 22, 25, 30 years old, wondering what the next decade of your life looks like. And I wanna ask us tonight, is there faith in the room? To lock in on a decade of harvest that Central Asia would have different statistics 10 years from now. That North Africa would look different 10 years from now. That the Himalayas would look different 10 years from now. That God would be speaking every language on earth through the scriptures 10 years from now. And I want to ask, why, Wim Kona, our community, this family, our DTS students, our students in the University of the Nations, our staff, could it be that tonight God wants us to lock in on a decade of breakthrough for every tribe, every tongue, and every nation? And how like God, in maybe the greatest cultural chaos that we have seen in decades, that he would say something like this? He's done it before, and he can do it again. In fact, when the original generation... Revolution. There was mass anarchy. There was so much suspicion of governments. And it was in this era that YWAM and many other missions organizations were birthed over 60 years ago. It was in the middle of cultural chaos. The headlines defied their faith, but their faith was greater than the headlines. 1966, in fact, the cultural icon of the time, Time Magazine, put a, a cover article, and I'm going to show that here in a second, asking a mocking question in 1966, is God dead? This is the era that YWAM is being birthed. This is the era that many of the other great missions organizations over the last 60 years were getting their start. And meanwhile, Time Magazine is asking if God is dead. In this exact time, Lauren and Darlene Cunningham are crisscrossing the nation and the nations of the earth, calling young people to the greatest hour of the Great Commission in human history, and time is asking if God is dead. How many you know today, many are asking, is God dead? Today, our headlines might be asking the same thing, might be boasting the same thing. But in 1966, no one knew that God was going to answer Time Magazine's question himself. And just a few years later, in 1972, Time magazine had to admit that Jesus had broken in. And in fact, God was not dead, but a Jesus revolution was on the way. And that Jesus revolution began to sweep the nations of the earth. And guess what? Lauren was right. Guess what? God was right. And guess what? God was not dead. And God began to raise up a generation in that time, the original generation of many of these missions organizations with grit grit with determination, living on the foundation of intimacy and the love of God. And they took the great commission and the gospel to lengths that had never gone before in history. And easily the last 60 years have been the greatest years of missions in 2000 years of church history in the midst of cultural chaos. Could God be doing it again? And tonight, could it be that he wants to release the same faith that the original YWAMers carried in 1960 on another generation in 2023 to lock in that though culture might ask, is God dead? I'm telling you, there's a Jesus revolution on the way. And you know it because it's already in your heart. Now, I want to talk just briefly and to give you some statistics, even some numbers, a little bit of a picture of what's happening in regards to the Great Commission right now all over the world, but also a bit of a picture of what's happening with Gen Z. I think personally that this is a hero generation. I might be Gen Z's greatest fan. And I absolutely believe the world has it completely wrong in all their accusations of what they think Gen Z might be. I think it's a hero generation waiting for a battle to fight. And when they realize that they are in a war, one of the greatest ideological wars in human history, this generation is going to rise up in mass, willing to give their lives for the greatest hour of the Great Commission. And I want to show you a little bit about what's happening at a Great Commission level, but what also is happening in this generation. I'm going to start with some good news. How many of you love good news? Turn to the person next to you and say, I love good news, really love good news. Here we go. I'm going to move kind of quick on some of this. Here's some good news. Today, Iran has the fastest growing evangelical movement in the world. That's good news. We can shout that down all day long. This is good news. Also, more Muslims have come to... Oh, sorry. For the first time in history, there are Jesus-following Christians in every single nation on earth. Now... We're the first people to wake up in the morning to that reality. That wasn't true 30 years ago. Probably wasn't even true 20 years ago. One of the privileges we have is that our founder, Lauren, has literally been to every nation on earth. And sometimes you'll hear missy, you know, missionaries that are missiologists that are trying to motivate people to missions, and they'll say things like, there are no known believers in the Maldives. And Lauren will be like, I've been to the Maldives myself. He goes, it was 1987, Wednesday, I believe, April 4th. I led several people to the Lord myself, and they're doing just fine. And then some will say, There are no known believers in Libya. And the Lord will be like, I snuck into Libya in the trunk of a car. 1998, June 3rd, 12 in the afternoon when I crossed the border. I met with underground churches in Libya, and they're doing just fine. He's literally been to every country on earth. And this reality is something we should not just gloss over and go, Oh, big deal. No, no, no. This is a huge deal. Every single nation on earth that you look at on that map has Jesus following believers for the first time in human history. This is the hour that we get to be alive. There are no boring days. Next one. This is fun. More Muslims have come to faith in the last 20 years than 1400 years of Islamic history. In the last 20 years, more Muslims have turned to Jesus than a combined 1400 years of Islamic history since the days of Muhammad. So many remarkable things happening in the Muslim world. Now let me talk a little bit about some of the opportunity that's in front of us right now. There are several classifications. It's going to be a little bit of a lesson tonight of those that are unreached. One term is classically called unreached. Those are nations, or I should say people groups that are less than 2% Christian and they lack the resources to grow. So they might, there are believers in that people group, but maybe 1%, maybe 0.5%, and they're not really growing. They don't have the leadership, they don't have the resources, they don't have the numbers to grow, but there are believers. The second classification are called unengaged. We think that there may be no known believers in those people group, none that we know of, and not a single missionary trying to reach them, not a single church trying to reach them, not a single known church in that people group. They're called unengaged peoples. Now, because of unprecedented unity that started in 2005, a movement of churches and missions organizations came together for the first time to share data and actually find out how many unengaged people groups are there. Nobody really had known. They all had their individual data, and they said, let's work together. Let's share data, and let's find out. And in 2005, they found that there were 3,158 unengaged people groups remaining in the world. How you many know this is unacceptable after 2,000 years of gospel history? And these leaders thought so as well. So in 2005, they said, We're laying down our differences, we're laying down our brands, we're laying down our egos, we're working together to see these people reached with the gospel. 3,158 remaining unengaged people groups. That's daunting, but they began to adopt people groups. They began to send and train missionaries from many nations all over the world, from South Africa, all across Africa, from the Philippines, all over Asia. This was all nations to every nation in order that these people, for the first time in human history, would be exposed to the gospel. Because of that unity and that collaboration since the year 2005, today there are 140 remaining. Today, right now, there are 140 remaining unengaged people groups on the earth, and that represents in the last 17 years, 156,000 churches planted among previously unengaged people groups across the earth. Come on, guys, this is worth celebrating. This is absolutely (laughs) remarkable that this is the hour that we live in. Now, it is easily estimated because of that momentum. I mean, just do the math of what's been happening in the last 17 years to think how long is it going to be until that number reaches zero? We are not that far off until 140 is actually zero. And I'm going to tell you how significant that is in just one moment. Let's go a little bit further here. Today, there are just over 2,443, not just over there, exactly. This is David Hamilton. He doesn't exaggerate. 2,443 languages without the scripture today. How many you know that is absolutely unacceptable? This is part of our inheritance as youth with a mission. In fact, in the last couple of weeks, I was able to spend a little bit of time with Lauren. And there were two things that really struck me that he said. One of them is he began to share a little bit more of the story of when he had the original encounter about the waves of young people, this open-eyed vision crashing all over the shores of the earth. And he began to explain to me that he had context for that vision because God had already told him that there was a generation coming like the world had never seen before. And I said, wait a second, was this like in the middle of the sexual revolution, like before the Jesus revolution? He goes, oh yeah, absolutely. So I go, you're telling me that you were totally convinced that a generation was coming when everything about culture still said God is dead? And he said, yes, absolutely. I knew they were coming. I knew a generation was coming. Oh, that we would be that convinced tonight. Oh, that we would be that convinced and no headline could make us think differently. No government decision could make us think differently. No cultural chaos or insanity could unconvince us that a generation is coming. And dare I say, a generation is here. That like the world has never seen before. The second thing that Lauren began to talk about was a word of 200,000 new missionaries that YWAM has carried for many, many years. And he said, I think I understand for the first time why we need 200,000 new missionaries. Because part of this next decade of breakthrough that we're believing for is that every language on earth for the first time in human history would have the Bible in their mother tongue. It will take 200,000, but not just the Bible and their mother tongue, but reached with the gospel. But not just reached with the gospel, but discipled and walking with Jesus. And not just discipled, but families transform, towns transform, villages transform, cities transform. And it's gonna take 200,000 missionaries to actually accomplish something so great. But is there faith in the Ohana court tonight yeah. that we could be heading into a decade of breakthrough this significant? Today, these languages, 2,443 without a Bible, YWAM alone has adopted 1,000 of those languages with the goal, along with many other organizations around the world that are in beautiful partnership that by the year 2033, every language on earth would have the scriptures. Now, time out, time out, just for a moment. There's gonna come a day in the next 10 years. There's gonna come let's just say a year, let's call it 2033. There's gonna be a month in 2033, let's call it April. There's gonna be a week, maybe the second week of April in 2033, let's call it April 10th. On April 10th, 2033, there's gonna be an hour, maybe it's 3 p.m. In that hour of 3 p.m., there's gonna be a minute, I don't know when it is, 3.13, let's call it. And in that minute... The last language on earth for the first time in human history is going to worship Jesus. And for the first time, come on, you got to understand this. Matthew chapter 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all ethnos, all languages, and then the end shall come. I'm not talking about the end, but I'm talking about finding yourself in the Bible. And we will for the first time because that 140 will be zero in the next 10 years. Every language on earth will have the scriptures in the next 10 years. And there will be a minute in a day, in a week, in a month, and in a year where God gathers the angels and the great cloud of witnesses looks down on the last unengaged people group as they are on the verge of singing about his glory. And for the first time in human history, a generation will find themselves written in the pages of scripture. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all languages. This is 10 years in front of us. This is not just any decade we're alive. This is not just any era. There will be a moment in the next 10 years where for the first time in 2,000 years of church history, the last people group on earth will worship Jesus. And for the first time ever, revelation will become a reality on earth that every tribe, tongue, and nation are worshiping Jesus. And friends, it's right in front of us is their faith for a decade of breakthrough in the Ohana court tonight. This is right in front of us. Now, the other part of this good news, and I need to keep moving, is that God is raising up a generation that is possibly the most missionally-minded generation in human history. A recent survey was done with Barna and it was done among Gen Z believers. So these are believers in Gen Z, and the question was asked, how many of you would consider vocational missions, a career in missions, as a future career for you? How many of you would be open to being a long-term missionary as a future career? This was asked to a subset, and the subset was Gen Z Jesus followers. You guys in the room, many of you. And they found that 52% of Gen Z believers said that they would consider being a long-term missionary in the nations. Has there ever been a more missionally geared generation in human history than Gen Z? Now, what was astounding to me, this survey was done in America as they began to break down that demographic and they just began to say, well, who in, a, who in America is saying this? 52% as a whole. But as they began to break it down, they found that among Caucasians, 48% had said that, which is unbelievable. That's remarkable. But they found higher than that at 54% were Hispanics that were said they would consider their career and missions. And then they found that the highest of all demographics in America considering a career and missions was 61% of African-Americans that said, I would give my life to be a missionary in another nation. And how many of you know that Asian-Americans are on the rise all over the nation as well? And how do you know this is not about America being the great, you know, missionary sending nation. This is about a missionary sending nation from the nations to the nations. This is South Africa reaching the nations. This is Nepalese reaching the nations. This is Kyrgyz reaching the nations. This is Moroccans leading the nations. This is a global movement of nations to nations. Now there's a challenge in front of us. Lots of good news, but also a challenge. Every single day, 154,937 people die without faith in Jesus, every day. This statistic needs to keep us up at night. This statistic needs to get us up early in the morning, living a life of intercession and radical obedience. I told you about unengaged people groups, but the much larger classification is the unreached that I talked about, less than 2%. Today, there remain 7,407 unreached people groups, totaling 3.2 billion people that are largely still waiting for the gospel with mostly no gospel access. Today, only 0.37 of all global missionaries actually work among those people. Today, there are 420,000 missionaries in the whole world, but only 4.4% actually even work among the 3.2 billion. Today, it doesn't say it up there, but there are 51,000 missionaries living in America. There are only 12,000 missionaries working and living among the 3.2 billion people still waiting for the gospel. Now, I read recently that the largest employer in the world is Walmart. I believe that they have 2.7 million employees that go to work every day at Walmart. Nothing wrong with that, totally awesome. People, that's their job, that is awesome. There is no sacred, there is no secular. They are missionaries to Walmart and every person that comes there. But I had to think how interesting that there are only 420,000 missionaries in the whole world reaching the unreached and there are 2.7 million people showing up at Walmart. The reason that we need 2.7 million employees at Walmart is consumerism. It's that we want to go to one store and buy everything. Consumerism drives Walmart and has made it the largest company in the world. When will the cry of the unreached drive the church to do more than Walmart? When will the cry of the unreached drive us beyond the convenience that has created YWAM to an inconvenience that would lead to the greatest sorry, that has created Walmart, not YWAM, that would lead us to an inconvenience that would lead to the greatest hour, of the Great Commission in all of human history. This statistic should not be, and could it be in the next decade that God wants to change this? A decade, of breakthrough. Currently, there, are one Christian, well, there is one Christian missionary in the Muslim world for every 405,000 Muslims. Now, when I think about how the Lord might look at the earth sometimes, I think of this map. I have it in a little folder that I pull out every day Praying for the nations. This map, the size of the nation is dependent on the numbers of unreached peoples in that nation. So you can see this is a global map. And sometimes when I read scriptures like Jesus leaving the 99 to reach the one, or flipping the furniture to find his one coin, or scanning the horizon for his one lost son. And we know that he came to seek and save the lost. Then I wonder, what does he look at when he looks at the earth? And of course, he loves every nation and every nation needs him. And there are lost people on every nation. But look at the size of India because of how many unreached people are there. Pakistan, Iran, Turkey, Bangladesh, Nepal, China, these massive disproportionate nations because of how many unreached people there are. Nigeria, Ethiopia, Morocco, Algeria. Then you look over at the U.S., Central America, South America, there's slivers not because we're all reached, clearly we're not. Not because our nations have it all great, clearly we're not. Not because we're all following God. But these places literally have no access to the gospel. What does Jesus see when he looks at a map of the earth? I wonder if it's a little bit like this. Now I've got a little bit more bad news. Everyone say bad news. Before we get back to some really good news, don't worry, we're going to end on good news. Here it is. This is possibly the most depressing This has to do with Christian giving. Christian giving, our income around the world equals $53 trillion. That's the income of believers around the world. Every year, $896 billion is given by Christians. That is the giving of Christians around the world. 82% of that goes to staff and to keep churches running. And that's great. We need churches. I'm not making a statement on that. 12% of that goes to home missions. That's great. We must be reaching our home regions. But of that number, only 1.7 percent of all giving goes to reach the 3.2 billion people that are waiting for the gospel all over the world. How many of you know there's something wrong with this? That our giving that for this percentage is that the 3.2 billion people waiting for the gospel, less than 2% of all Christian giving goes there. And in fact, this was extremely depressing is every year a hundred times more money is embezzled by pastors than is given to reach the unreached. Most depressing statistic I read. I couldn't write it up there because it was too depressing. I didn't want it seared in your mind. I didn't want you to see it was that uh, on the year this survey was done, 2018, I believe, that America spent more money on Halloween costumes for their pets than they did on reaching the unreached. They spent more money on a Halloween costume for a dog than we did trying to reach the 3.2 billion people around the world that are still waiting for the gospel. All right, let's move on. That was too discouraging. Question was asked of the church is, how many of you have ever heard of the Great Commission? 51% of people said, I have never heard of the Great Commission. 17% said they know what it means. 25% I've heard of it, but I don't know what it means. And 6% aren't sure, which means they're part of the 51%. They got confused. I don't know what happened there. Only 17%, these are all people that go to church on a Sunday. 17% of those who go to church on a Sunday know what the Great Commission is. And you have to ask yourself if we're not talking about the Great Commission in church, what are we talking about? It's the mission of the church. It's the mission of God's body. And if this is not being preached about, this isn't understood in the believers today in the church, then no wonder people are struggling with why they're alive. No wonder people are wondering, what is the purpose? What is the mission? Well, God has given us a mission. It's called the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations. Preach the gospel to all creation and do it from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. There's your life calling right there. And when we get a vision, I believe that we're gonna begin to see this catalytic generation, Gen Z, rise up for the Great Commission, maybe like we have never seen a generation in history. In fact, statistically, most believers, this shows that 1% of those who go to church on a Sunday morning will ever lead someone to Jesus in their lifetime, 1%. 99% of believers who go to church will never lead someone to Jesus. Statistics show that maybe 30%, 30 30-ish, will ever share the gospel in their lifetime. They go to church. Recent studies showed that 80% of Gen Z believers shared their faith in the last month of their life. Is this the most evangelistic generation in human history? Is it the most missionally minded generation in human history? And I said we'd end with good news and here it is, is that if you take all of this, the church has 3,000 times the finances and 9,000 times the resources to finish the Great Commission in one generation. There's a silver lining in all of those difficult and negative statistics, and it's this. If all this good news, only 140 remaining unengaged people groups, every language will have the Bible by the year 2033. If all of that good news, Iran being the fastest growing church in the world, more Muslims coming to faith than any time in history, all of that's happening with less than 2% of all giving going to the unreached, and all of that is happening with less than 1% of missionaries actually working among the unreached. Guys, what happens when just 5% of giving is going to the unreached? What happens when just 3% of missionaries are working among the unreached? But better yet, what happens when a whole generation gets gripped with the nations of the earth? What's possible? Well, this shows us we have 3,000 times the finances and 9,000 times the people, that's resources, to complete the the great commission in this generation. How many of you know it is a good day to be alive? Turn to the person next to you and say, this really is good news. Now, as I've said many times tonight already, I truly believe that God is raising up a catalytic generation. And I want to speak to the young people in the room for just a moment. You were born for such a time as this. And I think that you have been underestimated in your potential and you don't want to be coddled. You want a challenge worth giving your life for. You didn't sign up for easy Christianity. You didn't sign up for safe Christianity. I want to say when it comes easy and it comes safe to you, it's an insult to your generation. You are worthy and capable of so much more than people realize you're actually able to walk out. I think what this generation wants is a challenge. An impossible challenge, because I think it's a hero generation. And I think this generation wants to pay a price. I think so many messages and so many messengers and so many sermons and so many teachings that are out there for the next generation are so afraid to offend, so afraid to overly challenge that we're overly coddling. And I think the whole time you're crying out to be challenged. You know that you're a generation that wants to walk in grit and endurance and you know that that's what it's actually going to take. You got to know there's a reason that there are still this many unreached people groups. They're hard to reach. We're not going to waltz into these places and people, these languages, and all of a sudden they're going to be reached and they're going to be understanding the scriptures. It's going to take hard work, but guess what? I actually think you want hard work. I think it's who you are. I think you're pre-wired for it. I think you're waiting for a challenge that's big enough for the faith that's in your heart. And tonight, I want to throw down that challenge. If this previous generation is handing to us the inheritance of zero unengaged people groups, and this next gen, this previous generation is going, their work is handing to us no Bible-less languages, though we must participate in both of these. What is the inheritance we're going to pass on to the next generation? What will be the inheritance of Gen Z? Could it be that there are no unreached people groups left on the earth because of this generation? Could it be that there's a challenge? Now I want you to watch a short video that I believe exemplifies part of what I believe is in this generation about a young man who I think is very similar to many hearts in the room tonight. I just want you to watch this and to hear his story and to be provoked by his life. Let's go ahead and roll this video. It's just three minutes long. I think his life preaches more than anything we could say tonight. Unbelievable commitment to Jesus and success measured in obedience. And I just think about that sentence that he was... 18, 19 years old when God began to speak to him about these people. Took it so seriously, he spent nine years of his life preparing, training, getting everything he knew he would need to reach these people, knowing that he may not make it, but willing to be that excellent, willing to be trained, willing to give a decade of his life that a people that had never heard the name of Jesus, that had never worshipped, never heard in their language the gospel, that they would have the gospel, to him it was worth it. And this is what we're talking about tonight. This is what I believe is in the heart of a generation. This is what was in the heart of the original YWAMers and many heroes throughout history that gave their lives to the nations. It was this level of commitment. And as we kind of conclude tonight with this breakthrough of faith that I think God's wanting to release, I want to land in Acts chapter 9 on the life of the Apostle Paul. And I want you to think for a moment about his salvation moment where he's persecuting believers and He's zealous for God, but he doesn't understand that Jesus was the Messiah. Hey, I'm the one you're persecuting. His whole world is turned upside down. All of a sudden realize this, this man, Jesus was the Messiah. For three days, he goes into town and he doesn't eat, he doesn't drink. And he's blind and he's waiting on God and his mind is being, re- realizes all this fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and understanding the hour that they must be in. If this is the Messiah, then I know what this means. And then imagine the moment that Ananias comes to him, who's the man who is given a prophecy by God to go and visit Paul, terrible assignment because Paul was persecuting believers and Ananias didn't want to go. And it says that this is the message that the Lord gives to Ananias, go. Tell this to Paul, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, I want you to imagine, because you know, a lot of us in this room, I don't know how you came to the Lord, but it's almost been you know, popularized or it's not that uncommon to come to the Lord through a message of like, God loves you and he has a plan for your life. And often that plan is portrayed as just joy and, and bubbles and unicorns and just wonderful stuff. And, and, and it was all about our kind of joy and our freedom and our contentment and our satisfaction. And of course, our satisfaction is very real in our salvation. But I want you to imagine when Ananias explains to Paul the message from God and goes, Paul, first of all, you've got to know you are God's chosen instrument. And that word chosen was loaded for Paul because Paul was a zealous Jew for the glory of God. And Israel had been the chosen people through Abraham and then onwards, beloved by God to display the glory of God to all nations. And there were a few phrases that meant more to a Jew than chosen. It was their identity. They were loved by God. So when this word is now used for Paul over the very man that he's persecuting, this is an unbelievable display of love that not only is Israel a chosen people, but Paul, you are my chosen vessel. You are my chosen instrument. And this is an expression of love. And I'm sure Paul was dumbfounded in awe of this this word chosen. And then the very next sentence, and I will show you how much you must suffer for my name. This is not how many of us came to the Lord. I don't know if you were in a moment where you raised your hand and then the church was like, come to the side room and you got in the side room and they go, we're so glad that you chose to follow Jesus. Now we're going to tell you how much you're going to suffer the rest of your life. That that wasn't very many of our side room post-salvation moment conversations. You prayed with your teacher when you were in third grade, you know, and they led you to the Lord. And rightfully so, that teacher wasn't like, so glad you accepted Jesus. Now you're going to suffer. You're too young for that, right? But this is Paul's salvation moment. You're chosen and you are going to suffer for the gospel. And Paul does. He goes on to live both of those things. And though both of those themes are all throughout his writings. We see, and I'll just spend a little bit of time on this as we sort of wrap up. Actually, the worship team can come back up. Is that when Paul gets, you know, in the nearing the end of his life and he's writing to the church in Corinth, he's not at the very end, but he's lived a lot of life and he's done a lot of missionary journeys. He's actually giving a little bit of his resume to explain why he is an apostle and to kind of refute these other people who are boasting about their leadership and their apostleship. So he says, let me tell you about my credentials. They're all telling you their credentials, but let me show you this. And this is evidence of what God said to him when he got saved. Paul says, I have worked much harder. He says, I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews, the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. One time I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. you got to read that and just go, why did you ever get on a ship after the second time? I mean, one's bad enough, but after twice, would you just go by land, Paul? It's, just, it's more worth it. The sad part is he wrote this before he was shipwrecked on the way to Rome the fourth time. Four times shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers. Why? Don't cross the river if it's dangerous. I don't understand Paul sometimes. In danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, and in danger from the Gentiles. There isn't anyone else. The whole world is a Jew or a Gentile. I was in danger in Jews. I was in danger with Gentiles, in danger in the city, and in danger in the country. Where else is there? I guess rivers, but he was in danger there too. Maybe the ocean. He was shipwrecked there. Everywhere he went. Then he goes, even I was in danger from false believers. Not even in the church was he safe. I've labored and toiled, often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all of the churches. And Paul writes about, without saying it, the prophecy that came at his salvation. I'll show you how much you must suffer for my name. Took grit, determination, endurance, for Paul to walk out the call of God on his life. And I want you to imagine this for a moment. Paul gets 40 lashes, awful. Don't imagine that too much. Same thing Jesus went through. And I guess in that moment or after, you would go like, man, my Messiah did it for me and, and what an honor to do it in my obedience to my Messiah. How about the second time? Second time, I guess you would sort of be like, wow, Jesus did it once and I've done it twice. I really love you, right? Maybe there's a little bit of like, I don't know, I one to Jesus. I'm not sure. What about the third time? Five times he gets 40 lashes, What about the third time? How many of you would be tempted in that moment to wonder if God still loved you? How many of you, what about the fourth time? Do you even know what's going on down here? What about the fifth time, 40 lashes? How many of us would be tempted to be a little offended at God and ask the question, how can God be good? When I'm walking all this obedience out and I've just got my fifth time of 40 lashes, that's Paul. And you would never think that a man who went through that would be the same man who would write, I pray that you, together with all the saints, would have power to grasp the height and the depth and the width and the length of the love of Christ to know this love that surpasses knowledge. You would never read that resume and think the same man that walked through all of that suffering would be the same man who would write to the church in Rome, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship? How many of you know those were loaded phrases? Our trouble is like, man, someone said, someone was mean to me yesterday. They honked at me. Last week, someone wrote me a mean email, called me a name. His trouble and hardship was a little different. Shall trouble or hardship, shall famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He'd faced all those things. Don't you love it when he gets dragged out of town and gets stoned? I mean, you don't love it, but the story's incredible. And his disciples stand around him. They go, dang, Paul's dead. They literally says dead. And why did they think he was dead? Because he looked dead. This is kind of common sense. Why would disciples be like, Paul's dead? He looked dead. Blood coming out of his head. He was gashed with rocks. And then while they're like, Paul's dead, Paul gets up. That's a moment. Paul's a boss, guys. He's just a boss. And then you got to know, the disciples are like, you're alive. And he's like, I don't even know if he talks to him." And, then, and he gets up, starts walking. They're like, where are you going? He's like, I'm going back to town. You're like, the town that stoned you? He's like, yep. It rolls right back into the town that just stoned him. We don't know what really happened there, but I have to wonder if Paul thought to himself, well, they rejected the first time I shared, but what about it when I roll into town and forgive them after stoning me? wonder if they'll be a little more receptive to my message. I don't know. I'm making it up. But this guy is different. He's different. And that same man that went through all that writes this sentence, no, in all of these things, shipwrecked, stoned, beaten, all of that, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Come on, guys. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, Neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is Paul's sentence. Having lived that life, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. He both understood that he was chosen, and he walked out that he must suffer in his obedience to the Lord, and the end result was a man who declared, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I think there's a generation today that wants to declare for me to live as Christ and to die as game. Generation that would lock in for a decade, way longer, but for a decade of breakthrough. A decade that by the end of these 10 years, would there be faith tonight in this Ohana court that there are no unengaged people groups left in the world? Come on, guys. Would there be faith in this Ohana court that 10 years from now there's not a Bibleist language left in the world? would there be faith in this ohana court tonight that there will be revival all across the south pacific island 10 years from now and there'd be kashayan missionaries launched all over the world who we believe in this ohana court 10 years from now there'd be a different story over north africa that there'd be a different story over central asia no longer be the least reached region in the world It'd be a region sending missionaries out of central asia kyrgyz missionaries kazakh missionaries There'd be a new story written even over our own cultural chaos and that people all across a Western world of Europe and America would not be asking the question, is God dead? They would be making the statement, isn't the Jesus revolution amazing? Could it be that this is the decade that's in front of us? And I want to ask you to stand tonight. Paul's response was just wholehearted, joyful obedience. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. God is not promising that the future will be easy and no one in here is signing up or wants an easy future. We want God. God's not promising safe passage everywhere we're called. And I don't think that's what anyone in this room signed up for when they said Jesus was just safety the rest of their life. Safe Christianity will never change the world. Never has. I think there's a generation that wants to go all in. YWAM is multi-generational, but the youth have always been the catalyst. The 18, the 19, the 20 year old, the 25 year old, they've always been the catalyst. And I wanna dare to believe that in 2023, that there's another generation of catalysts that have a decade of faith in their hearts, even tonight, to lead into the greatest breakthrough that the world has ever seen. The greatest harvest every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And tonight, I think there's a few staff, might be 25, might be 30, kind of on the edge of like, I don't really know what my future is. i kind of lost, don't really feel locked in in what I'm doing. God, what are you calling me to? I pray that tonight you would lock in on a decade of breakthrough. It's worth it. John Chow thought it was worth it. Paul thought it was worth it. And I think there's a whole bunch of people tonight that think it's worth it.